1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You're listening to The EuroTrip, your favorite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at EuroTrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Warming you up for the Eurovision
0: Song Contest.
2: Hello everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Whenever you may be listening to this episode over the festive season, it's Rob here. It's great to have you here. And I hope you have had a wonderful Christmas. And it is brilliant to have you with me for this belated Christmas gift from us here at the EuroTrip, the world's favourite Eurovision podcast. This is the present that you forgot that was kind of hidden at the back of the tree, and then you've opened it, and you're like, actually this has been my favourite Christmas present of the year, or at least that's what we're hoping anyway. Today I'm bringing you a special feature-length conversation. So sit back, relax, enjoy this, maybe with some wine, some port, some cheese, or maybe on one of those festive walks where the wind is a little bit bracing, but you know maybe there's a pub at the end of it or something, so it's all worthwhile. Today I am chatting to the managing director, of Eurovision 2023. So this is Martin Green and he was the man responsible for organizing every single aspect of Eurovision in Liverpool. He was responsible for coordinating everything from the opening and interval acts, the flag parade, the lighting, the stage, the logo, the slogan, all of the above so loads to talk to him about it was brilliant to have him actually join me in a studio in London so we were together to have this conversation which I think just made the whole thing a little bit more wholesome and a little bit more lovely so hope you enjoy this and also remember to share it and tell a friend if you think they'd enjoy this between Christmas and the New Year as well and also we'd love you to get in touch and let us know what you think at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and we're on TikTok as well and also feel free to send us an email hello at eurotrippodcast.com. Be great to hear your thoughts on this chat with Martin but also please do tell us if you've been enjoying the podcast over the last 12 months throughout 2023 as well. So here he is then, this is my chat, my gift to you, my chat with Martin Green, the Managing Director of Eurovision 2023. Martin Green, welcome to the Trip. It's good to be here. Uh, Martin, how are you? Because we are talking, what, six, seven months on from an incredible period of your life where you were very busy for quite a long time, obviously organising the Eurovision Song Contest of 2023.
0: So how are you now? I'm a lot better than I was the day after the show, I'll tell you that. Um, I, we all, actually, and I will say we all, because it was all, we all slept a lot in those days after. It was um, just one of the greatest, funnest experiences I've ever had in my career. But I think we would all say it was also some of the hardest we've ever worked. And I, I don't think there was any of us that wasn't, Gladly broken by the morning after, although that could be partly towards to do with the party. <laughs> I will ask about the party.
2: Obviously, it goes without saying. <laughs> Marston, we had the opportunity to chat to you a couple of times very very briefly in the run up to, to Liverpool because you were very busy so it is lovely to have you here to sit down and just go through everything that happened everything that was Liverpool 2023 and also celebrate it because you must look back on it very fondly despite the fact of course the <laughs> morning after it might not quite have felt like that
0: uh, uh, it, it's one of the it, it's just one of the privileges of my career to do that show I do al- you know we'll probably get into this but I'd always wanted to do that show and I couldn't believe on a personal level I was doing it we had the greatest team we had a really important reason for doing it and collectively man did they pull it off and so the the, the best thing you can do when you produce a show is walk away without regrets and we had not one single regret about it, it, it and, and actually thank you for the opportunity because It's really nice to, like you say, when you're in it, you get like, okay, I can give you 30 seconds because it's just madness. But to be able to sort of sit down and think about it and actually have a record for myself about this journey, apart from obviously the show itself, which I have a record of. I also have a bag that's made out of the banners that arrived the other day. Oh, that's nice. Yes, which I've got. I've got a lot of swag from it, which has got pride of place in the house now. I'd expect nothing else. I'd expect expect nothing else. (laughs) Do you know what they gave me? The EBU gave me a mini trophy how big how like, like a small like it's about this big like it's what, Like a foot? mini version yeah i think you might be able to buy them on the shop i don't think they made it but you coming. didn't have to no, buy I yours didn't. but the ebu as a thank you they gave me a certificate that said that i had done eurovision uh, as love. if you'd done like your 50 meter swimming badge right but bigger it's, but it's brilliant i love it it went straight to the wall and they gave me this mini trophy and it's like one of the most precious things and um Arga Alkalina is a massive Eurovision fan and she was like running around the house. I was like, it was really funny. I was like, please don't break it. Uh, but she yeah, she's uh, she's the uh, Romanian and she she uh, she loves the Eurovision song contest, it turns out. Uh, I was gonna ask you where it lives.
2: Can I ask you where it's it lives? It's on the
0: shelf in the living room and the and the certificate is uh, is is up on the wall in the hallway. I've got a load of pictures of, of all the shows I've done and it's pride of place up there. Rightly so, rightly so.
2: Martin can we talk about your I was going to say your your credentials first of all because people who are listening to this will see Martin Green Managing director Eurovision twenty twenty three. But of course your career is far, far, far more than that. So what were the things that you'd done, obviously, that led to you eventually being asked to do Eurovision?
0: So look, I'm a I'm a live show producer basically and I produce shows and festivals. So I guess, you know, I, I in my formative years I worked for the Mayor of London, who was Ken Livingstone at the time, and I used to produce New Year's Eve and all the shows we did in Trafalgar Square. And then I went to be part of the team that opened the O2 in London from being the Millennium Dome. But then I guess the big break was I I got the job as head of ceremonies for the London Olympic Games. So I produced the opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympics and Paralympics and the torch relays and the medal ceremonies and the welcome ceremonies. Um, and which is the, it, that kind of gig, if, if you don't get it right, you, you never work again. But fortunately, again, due to an extraordinary team, not least Danny Boyle uh, and Kim Gavin on closing and Bradley and Jenny on Paralympics, we, you know, we, we got away with it. Um, and then I went up to Hull and I ran Hull UK City of Culture, which for, for our European friends is a, is a four yearly program that happens in a different city every four years. And I ran that and that was huge fun. And then, essentially, I, I then went and, and was the creative director on the on the um, uh, Birmingham Commonwealth Games, so the culture programme and the opening and closing ceremonies of the Birmingham Commonwealth Games last year, um, and also a programme called Unbox, where we commissioned 10 extraordinary happenings across the UK. And And after that, I was it had been quite a long run, and that last job was four years through COVID, and everybody was a bit knackered, and I was going to take some time off. Um, just to kind of decompress a bit. And then I got a call with probably the stupidest question that's ever been asked of me, which is, would you come and run Eurovision? And I think I said yes halfway through the sentence.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Martin, your LinkedIn is one of the most impressive LinkedIn
0: profiles I've <laughs> <you've> think ever seen. <laughs> I'm very, I am the luckiest girl alive, right? I get paid for doing what I love and I genuinely do love it. And there can be great highs and there can be great lows. It's, it's high stakes stuff when you're, Delivering a live show in front of a billion people or in Eurovision's case, 164 million, you know, and, and, and everybody has an opinion of what it should be. Um, But the rewards are enormous. And I get to work with, you know, and I, I, I won't not keep saying this the most amazing group of people who are some of the same some of them are different um but but doing something on that scale is truly a a team effort of many many different types of talent um and i'm lucky that there are also a lot of people who will keep working with me as well which is also what you need they don't go god not him
2: martin talk to me about the uh about that phone call and and those first few weeks in in the job you know presumably Quite daunting to begin with. You've done, obviously, you know, you've just mentioned, you've done huge, huge events, huge projects, none bigger than the Olympic and, and Paralympic Games, of course. But quite daunting because Eurovision 2023 was was unlike any event, I assume, that you'd ever done before. We know it was unlike any Eurovision we'd ever seen before, but it was unlike any, any event, I assume, you'd done previously.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many different answers to that question, so I might waffle on a bit. You're right, it, it was different because obviously it was it was being hosted not in the country that won it but there were similarities in that you know if you look at those big ceremonies for sporting events they are multi country and you are literally welcoming the world so the idea of doing something which is being competed by by many different countries you know there are similarities i think you have to split it into the personal and the professional personally eurovision is is part of my culture it's part of my community. I have sat around the TV and watched it for what feels like all my life and felt very much a sense of belonging with that. And so as my career in producing large-scale shows went on, of course, you know, and I, I, your mind wanders. And I'd been asked many times, you know, what's the, what's the show you've always wanted to do? And it was always the same answer, Eurovision. I have always wanted to be involved in that show and but also knowing that you know the odds of that happening were you know whatever 37 to 1 every year ongoing is right so not really think it would happen and then on the professional side i will confess as i was i was watching it in a hotel room when ukraine won and i think we all thought i don't know how they're going to do that which then led to, I wonder where it would be if it wasn't there. And then over the summer, you know, you started to pick up, you know, and again, because I work in the industry, you've got an inside track on it, that there was a very real conversation of it coming to the UK. And I, and I won't lie, there were a few people who got an email or a call from me going, if this happens, I would, very, you know, literally, it was, a, I will make the tea. Right. I I will do anything to work on that show. And in the end, you know, the BBC decided that, you know, whilst they knew no one could teach the BBC about how to make television, organising these multifaceted live events might need a different kind of expertise. And that's when they reached out and said, would you do it? And and by by then we had six months left because through nobody's fault. Um, it took six months for the governments to agree to bring it here. And there's a very sobering reason for this, that for the Ukrainians to say that Eurovision was not going to happen in Ukraine was them saying that they believed this war would go on. And they were rightly in no rush to make a statement like that. But the BBC had started, obviously, the bidding process. So actually, my first day... (laughs) Was spent in the one studio, one show studio, handing the envelope to Graham Norton. So you were, you were the, the, the person off that camera, held it over. but I had, I had the envelope, and Rachel Ashdown, who was my work wife on this show, the the brilliant Eurovision uh, exec producer at the BBC. Uh, kindly, as it was my first day, said, you can do it. And uh, so I handed him the envelope. Did you double-check the envelope? Well, I did, but no one double-checked that it didn't say Liverpool right. on the front, right? <laughs> so, by the way, my first day at work was a massive cock-up for me. was right? like, <laughs> no one... Like, none of us We. I mean, Martin, you didn't print the envelope, to be fair. I didn't, but none of us... I think we were all so giddy and excited that no one clocked that we'd put the Liverpool Eurovision logo on the front or the one we were using as holding. So actually... For those of you who didn't clock it, he pulls out the envelope and obviously you can't see it. it's got Liverpool written on one side. But on the other side, it's got Eurovision Song Contest, Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those great things. But anyway, that was my first, essentially my first day at work. It's not many people can say their first day at work with at the one show. I mean, it was like all my dreams come true. Like Graham Norton, the one show, announcing the city that it was going to be held in. And, you know, therefore, you know, that I was the managing director of Eurovision, I was in charge of the whole shebang, you know, it was, it was, God, it was amazing.
2: So managing director of Eurovision 2023, you've been asked this question a million times, so apologies for asking again, what does it mean?
0: So look, very simply, I was in charge of delivering Eurovision. Right. As many people will know, it is the host broadcaster who takes responsibility for organising Eurovision. That's slightly different in major events, because usually you you have a completely separate organising committee set up for Commonwealth Games, sporting events, blah, blah, blah. But on Eurovision, it's the host broadcaster that does it. So um we obviously work alongside all the other stakeholders, notably Liverpool City Council, the region you know everyone we need to work with the ebu of course because we're working for the ebu and all our fellow broadcasters um but you're you're essentially in charge of delivering the whole thing end to end uh and making sure that this very complicated ship and it is very complicated you know is running on every level uh from from the shows to the city to the ticketing to the sponsorship uh to the staffing to the you know everything and how difficult is it keeping all of
2: those stakeholders happy? Because like you said, you know, you are working for the BBC in this instance, but you have the EBU, you have UAPBC, the Ukrainian broadcaster as well, and, and you know, so many other mm. um, stakeholders. You've got sponsors and, and all sorts of things like that. So how difficult is it to balance
0: all of that? It can be very difficult. On this one, it was not difficult at all um, because we had this... I mean, you know, we had this higher purpose, you know, unfortunate, we were doing this for unfortunate reasons, but everybody knew, therefore, there was a bloody good reason why they were doing it. And everyone acknowledged from the outset that we, we were short of time, and therefore we couldn't ask around. But also, I think, you know, Eurovision is a very pure thing. It does what it says on the box. And it's very difficult to misinterpret it, right? Unlike an unwieldy beast like an Olympics or anything like that. So everyone absolutely got it, you know. And so essentially what we did, first of all, is we sat down with all the key stakeholders and just divvied everything up. So, you know, we all knew that ultimately, you know, we were reporting to the EBU. That was through the BBC. The the Department for Culture, Media and Sport knew that they had a role, and their role was particularly to help us deliver everything for Ukraine because it was the government who ultimately agreed to hold it here on their behalf. Liverpool City Culture, City of Culture, under the amazing Claire McColgan. Uh, you know, I've I've known her for years, Claire. That was very lucky because we, you know, we do the same thing, right? And she she just went, right, what are we doing? What are you doing? And we just divvied it up and we agreed to meet every month and see if we were roughly in the right place. And then everybody else sort of rolled in, from there, the, the police in, in Liverpool were just sensational. The city region, who particularly were looking at transport as well as other things. So it all rolled in. We set up a mechanism for checking in with each other, but we also agreed we were not going to get up all in each other's business. And so that made for sort of plain sailing. And then the really key thing, and, and and we did it before we did anything, was that we went to Warsaw and met our Ukrainian colleagues. Warsaw was the closest we could get. It was a two-hour flight for us, a 12 and a half hour train journey on trains. They never knew when we're turning up or leaving for them. And I, you know, it, it was an obvious question. I sort of sat there and said, I feel silly talking about a singing competition in front of you. And they said, absolutely not. This is really important to us. Normality is important. Showing everyone who we are is important. You could not be more wrong. And so let's get rid of that straight away. And that moment of permission from them was was, uh, was really important because we really then did know that they wanted to do it. And we just committed to say, look, we will do this together, both on screen and off screen. Um, and so they spelled out, you know, that they wanted to to really put over a really modern version of Ukraine and they wanted to celebrate what Ukrainian culture was and could be the great thing about Eurovision, it's big enough not to do either or. So we knew that we could celebrate Liverpool, the UK, Ukraine, and the 37, 36 other competing nations, because we had time to do that. The question was, how could we elegantly bring it all together and make sense?
2: Martin, how much pressure was there from from the government to present a certain view on screen, or is there not at all? Because understandably, people will ask the question, but you know, given the, the situation that's that's ongoing, but was there pressure from the UK government?
0: No, not at all, actually. We were we were really lucky in the Minister Stuart Andrews and the whole of the DCMS that, that well, for a start, they were fans, right? Uh, uh, Stuart is what we came to know and call people were raging Eurovision fans, and you can find them everywhere. Um, and they knew what their job was, and they also knew the opportunity. You know, Liverpool suffered terribly through COVID like everyone else. It's probably one of the cities that was hit most because most of its, a large proportion of its income is from tourism and the service industry. So they knew that in terms of their work for the UK, this was a way to say loudly to the world that Liverpool and us, the UK, is open for business. So there were very good reasons. But there was an enormous amount of respect from the minister and the DCMS about the expertise of the people doing it. And, you know, their main message was crack on, shout when you need something. Uh, and and again, they were very clear that they particularly wanted to help uh, around anything that had Ukraine written on it. So they were the people who organised and funded the subsidised tickets for Ukrainians living in the UK. They made sure that you know we could get people in from Ukraine and out from Ukraine and things like that. And they were enormously helpful. But no, they 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 that that group of people would never. You know why would they possibly tell the BBC and a bunch of creatives how to do a show? It would well, I'd I'd, I'd pay money to watch that conversation. Actually, <laughs> it's not that it's hap- not that it hasn't happened before on other shows, but on this one, it it do- it didn't. You you
2: mentioned the uh, the raging Eurovision fans that you find everywhere. I think you know, it's, it's fair to say, Martin, you've you've described yourself as one. I, I am totally yeah. <laughs> but you said you know you find them everywhere, so. As an outsider to the BBC's Eurovision team, who then became a, obviously a key part of that, and talking about the BBC Eurovision team, looking forward to future contests now, you know those that will work on the, on the UK act and entry for, for 2024, for example, just how much can you get across to our listeners how much they care? Because there is often talk about when an app doesn't do well, or you know, especially not necessarily in the in the last couple of years, but previously well, they don't care, it's just another job that they do on top of this other stuff and they turn up in May and that's what it is. Yeah. It's not that, is it?
0: No, not to. I think, you know, this was the first... I'd worked beside the BBC in nearly everything I've done and I've always found them absolutely brilliant, but to go in and be part of the BBC for the first time in my career was a complete privilege. You have to understand that the BBC is full of people who are brilliant at their job right? They, they, are, they are first class people and they care deeply about the output. Um, you know, yes of course on one level they care about how many people are watching it and also if the amount of money that's been spent on it is value for money, right? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you know as well as I do that the success of the UK Act really has no correlation to how many people in this country watch Eurovision. Yes, we put a million on it this year, but, you know, it was doing very well anyway. But you, you know, Rachel Ashdown, who is probably the person responsible for, you know, the renaissance of Eurovision on the BBC because she, you know, really did have a different way of looking at how we chose who was on and, and how we did it and Rachel lashdown's probably not a name that we mention a lot on the podcast. No, we, we have she's far too classy <laughs> to do anything like this. Is Rachel?
2: I I did an interview with her. I think in October 2022, just in the, you know as we were getting the wheels in motion for 2023, and she said to me, she said, "I don't normally do these, and I'm not a big fan of of talking," which is hilarious when you were talking about. I think yeah. at the time, lead commissioner of entertainment for the BBC, and obviously then took on the role for Eurovision, but you know an, an unsung hero for, for the UK oh, oh totally
0: totally she's brilliant but as I say she's she's she's, uh, she's uh, far too classy to, to to put herself out there she just gets on with the job and she does it brill- but she's a re- surrounded by brilliant people too the the the, the commissioner for for um, you know factual entertainment is amazing um, you know we were working with the chief of staff there as well because he turned out to be a raging Eurovision <laughs> fan too and then you know the, there was a group of people who were already working around the subject matter but no their their commitment to this is is you know outstanding but but also what I learned is their commitment to everything they do is outstanding and I you know I will always use the opportunity to say that the BBC is probably the greatest cultural institution in the world right and you know I think we all have a responsibility to protect it and yes to hold it to account but you know, it is brilliant. Right. And, and, you know, certainly I would march on the streets before anything happened to the BBC. You, you go around the world and see what other broadcasters do and you forget at your peril. What, what an amazing jewel in the crown it is, and how globally people look at us in awe for having this thing called the BBC. And before
2: we finish, it would be great as well to, to talk about how you and, and the rest of the BBC team you've worked on as well have, have kind of chatted to the, the Swedish organisers mm. uh, ahead of the contest uh, in 2024.
0: How were the EBU to work with? They were great fun. They were great fun. I mean, I, you know, I, I saw handsome Martin Osterdahl on the telly, <laughs> right? And I thought, you know, he's a bit of a dish, isn't he? And then, you know, there I am. Great, great knitwear as well. I mean, um, he's thought. just, it's... Horrible, really, because you'll be in early morning meetings and everything and, and you'll be really tired and you'll look like crap and in what's Osterdale looking like a million dollars all the time. It's just not right. Those Swedish jeans um, and his Swedish jeans. Uh, but, of course, then you meet someone you only know off the telly and they turn out to be smart and erudite and brilliant and really supportive and guiding right you know we were a feisty bunch and i and i know this from other global work we've done the brits are feisty when it comes to putting on shows and creativity right and he totally understood that and he knew that there were places we were going to come and we were going to push and and he would go okay because we made our case and there were other places he'd push back and say look that's not how we do it and you have to think of this in context as something that happens in a different country every year and the rules are really important and they are so there was a really good dialogue and then he in turn is surrounded by a really small but brilliant team And then you've got the reference group made up of, well, I think nearly all made up of people who've previously produced the show or or been very close to it. And again, they were massively supportive. We were, you know, UK hasn't hosted, hadn't hosted Eurovision for 25 years. Nearly everyone on that show, therefore, everyone on that show was doing it for the first time. Right. So we had a lot to learn, but we also had a lot to offer. And so it was it was a really, really good relationship.
2: Let's talk about some of the more creative elements, I suppose. Then, what were you mentioned the feistiness from from the BBC side and from your side? What were some of the most difficult conversations you had around stuff that you wanted to do? Are there any examples of stuff you wanted to do that you couldn't do?
0: Not really, because it's you. You never really get that. If if those conversations, if creative conversations, either get to yes or no, you you're probably having the conversation in the wrong way. Great creative conversations are with people with great opinions who are willing to listen to other people. It is never about compromise because... You compromise creativity, you end up with beige, right? It's never about compromise, but it's about going. Actually, yes, I accept that is a really good idea and is either better than the one I had or is a build on what I had, right? So you you never really get to the point in good teams where someone's saying, "No, I will not let you do this," you know. Um, I guess where I guess we were pushing to mention the war. And it's it's not that the EBU ever had a problem with that. But, of course, you know, it makes people nervous because we're pushing it out to many, many countries that have different views uh, on what, not the war, because I think everyone agrees it's outrageous and illegal and, and it shouldn't be happening, um, but, but where the line is on particularly public broadcasting and also where the line is between what is absolutely an out-and-out entertainment programme and talking about serious stuff. So I think there were some really, really good conversations about where that line was. And I think the rest was just, just really, really good ideas that were flooding in from the creatives and... You know, Rachel's really good at this. She can sp- she can spot a duff idea a mile away, <laughs> right? And uh, because she's so forensic, and she will she will she, her brain has the ability to look at a subject from a thousand different angles in about one second, and she can. Each, whereas it'll probably take me a week to come back in and go, oh, I've, I've I've I think I've realised that's not a very good idea, <laughs> <laughs> right? So thank God for her. So yeah, it, it was it was a very iterative, organic process. Again. One of the exercises I did with the team is that we sat down with the three broadcast shows and said, where are they different and where do they where do they add up to make one? And it was one of the best sessions we did early on and said, right, what's 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 the first program about? What do we want to get over? You know, how do we want to welcome people? Number two continuing the journey but deepening the experience and number three having hopefully got those two right you know the party to end all parties really and it it seems very simple but it was a very good exercise which then drew you could draw down where the rest of the content would go from there um and so we mapped all that out at the beginning with the team and then that gave us a sort of a direction of travel which also when we were blown off course we could remember and come back to again. I wonder then what was, the, what was the most
2: Eurovision, in inverted commas, conversation that you
0: had? There were so many. <laughs> there were so many. And now, of course, you've asked me, but, you know, I mean, a lot of them are unrepeatable because it, it does get very, very rude very, very quickly. This is why we never did a behind the scenes and why I never, ever do behind the scenes. This is why we want to do these I, chats. Well, I never do behind the scenes programmes because um, the the process of making entertainment is essentially ludicrous right because of the conversations you're having also in eurovision most of the ludicrous content is provided by the acts of course right so you know we were when we saw the was it the croatian act for the first time we were slightly worried about the underwear wearing and you know what might pop in and out of those uh And yeah, mo- most of the conversation we had were about costumes and either the danger of or apparentness of genitalia, I think. <laughs> Should we just leave it at
2: that? That is fine. Yeah, we can leave it at that. Um, staging as well, I imagine, is quite difficult when it comes to to, to acts and songs and countries. Obviously, there was a, the big talk was around, obviously, Sweden and Lorene, who oh, obviously, as we know, went on to win. And the sandwich the sandwich.
0: Um, well, for a start... You know, it is... It's worth saying to people, you know, we made eight and a half hours of live television in five days. We ran that show 12 times nine of them with audience by the end of the week the show is so long that the audience coming out and meeting the audience come in (laughs) there are 37 live links into that show right it is a really and you have to change the set in 40 seconds and god love them i'm so pleased those boys and girls became the stars of the show and if you haven't seen the videos online of those set changes they are ballets of beauty right we're also lucky to have a brilliant executive in charge of production james o'brien and his team out of bbc studios who were producing the actual show show um who really told the great thing about eurovision is you phone everyone up and say do you want to work on eurovision and they go can you give me half an hour to dump everything I'm doing, right, which is probably paying me more and is being done in, you know, with more time, but of course, right. So James managed managed to collect this just awesome team. And then Julio from Yellow Studio ended up doing the set and he really understood the brief of what we needed that set to be. And it's, you know, it is a working set. It, it, you know, it, it really works hard. That set it has to look good, but be completely functional. And you, usually those two things can butt up against each other. Um, so I think once we got the set and we all love the set and then we figured out we could make it work. And then, of course, you've got those set changes, which start off, you know, hilarious. <laughs> That? In the in the um, in those first rehearsals that we don't
2: see, there must be some absolutely ridiculous things going well, on. Where, where I don't know, something accidentally gets left on. There's a well, trumpet on stage L- 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 or whatever. really
0: did get sandwiched. I mean, she, like there was in the early days when we were practicing getting her on and off. But we had, obviously we had to get the top of it down onto the bottom half, unclip it, get it off which obviously required Lorene not to be on there. And there was one time where the timing slightly went out and we really nearly did have a Lorreen sandwich, so <laughs> God bless her. But also there was the, who was the guy who had that strange flower thing?
2: Oh, this is uh,
0: Luke Black from Serbia. Right. Yeah. And that was one of those, everybody had a different idea about what that thing was. And then eventually, like way into the show, someone told us that it was one of those magic moments where everyone and you heard everyone on your ear on your cans as well go, Oh, that's what it is <laughs> Right. We knew every song by the end of it and in and out. I remember James O'Brien. There was we were in a rehearsal and there was no audience in there and there was actually barely anyone in the room. And um it all went quiet after a after a run of a song. And he leant back in his chair and he just went, I've been here since March. (laughs) He kind of summed up how, because we were in that arena for seven weeks. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: Martin, some of the other landmark stages, I suppose, of any Eurovision, you know, you have things like the the allocation draw, for example, but you have the announcement of who will be hosting the show. Mm. Do you remember those initial conversations when the names that we eventually ended up getting were, uh, you know, suggested to you as, as, as we might be doing this? What do you think?
0: Yes, the... The, na- the names that were suggested as the four were always the four. Now, you obviously, you're talking about more names because you don't know at that stage if people have a- availability or indeed want to do it, yeah. right? We shouldn't presume everyone's dying to do it. <laughs> Not um, everyone is a raging they were in. Answer. Yeah, exactly. Those, the, you know, the four of them. Oh, no, no, sorry. So the three of the, the you know, Alicia, Hannah, Graham were absolutely being talked about from the beginning and it was a case of talking to them and blah 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 and of course they all said absolutely they wanted to do it the Ukrainians gave us Four suggestions, I think, and then we spoke to people and and eventually uh, arrived at Yulia. Um, You know, we we were very keen to have. We loved the fact that the two rehearsals would be an all female team. Yeah, we loved that. Uh, we knew that there was you know other Ukrainian presenters that we wanted to be in other areas of the show and do and doing stuff. So that was good. But yeah, you know, we were very lucky that the people we wanted were were the, were the people we got. Was there ever
2: talk around Graham doing all of the shows or was it always Graham is going to do the Saturday? My
0: understanding was that Graham was very keen to do the Sat, just to do the Saturday we thought that was a really nice touch because he is Eurovision and that we felt that made Saturday night very special, it also meant that we had three women presenting the two uh, dress rehearsals which, uh, the, the two semi-finals which I thought was fantastic and they were all singers which I really loved so so there's a certain point with shows like this where it tells you what it needs to be and everything sort of settles in that order. And so we weren't forcing anything or anyone in any direction. It just happened that way and it, and it sorts itself out, I think.
2: We we will do all of the joy as well, obviously. We'll do all of the joy of, of the live shows. But was there a, a hard day? Like, Was there a hardest day?
0: Yeah, look, the, the, it goes back to having six months and not a year because... What I said to James, particularly in October, was it, it's we can't scrap through six months just chasing our tails. We have, in January, we have to be where we should have been if we'd had a year, which essentially meant that I was saying we have to do nine months' work in three months, right, from October to December, and you lose half of December because everyone's rightly on their Christmas break. Then you add in the fact that there's three years of touring going on at the moment post COVID. So stuff and people are hard to get, particularly at short notice. And you've got to procure it all because you're spending uh, a degree of public money and you need to spend that rightly.
2: And, and when you say stuff, is this literally things like an LED
0: screen or they're a set. light? Or, yes, yeah. they're set. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Everything needs to be procured. Everything needs to be valued for money. Everything needs to be designed. Um, and so, you know, the, you've got all that. The fact that things are scarce and people are scarce. There's no doubt about it. Brexit has made things very difficult to, to to do, um, so th- those months were hard for the whole team. You know, they really were because there was just so much to do. We needed to get ticketing off the ground very quickly, and we, you know, ticketing for Eurovision is not simple <laughs> at all, as everyone knows. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we wanted to make sure that you know that that was being done correctly. We needed the brand and the. Uh, because we couldn't do anything until we had the, the, what people know as the FEMA. I, I call the brand because it's much more it, the brand is much more about what kind of Eurovision did we want to do, which is where United by Music came from. And so those months, yeah, they, there was a lot of and a lot of kind of looking at colleagues and going, I don't know how we're going to do this. But this is when people just come into their own and they go, I got you. I'll do it. It will be done. Right. Uh, And they were brilliant, which meant by January we were essentially in the position where we it it was as if we'd had a year. And the net result of that is an important one. It calmed everyone down and and it let everyone start enjoying it, which meant that by the time the talent arrived, both in terms of presenters, but also the acts, they were coming in. To a very relaxed, happy atmosphere, which meant they relaxed, right? And it was said repeatedly, and it's the best thing that anyone could ever say. They kept saying, "This is the happiest Eurovision I've ever been to," and that was so important
2: to us. I remember being at the launch event, which I think you spoke at, and the hosts were there, <laughs> the hosts were there as well. Graham was on this dodgy Zoom that flicked in
0: America, yeah.
2: flicked in and out. It was incredible, but. The overarching memory that I have from that event was, and I think this was probably about a month before the live shows, was just... Joy, like you said, it, everyone did seem chilled, everyone seemed relaxed, but also everyone seemed like they were getting on and everyone was having conversations with each well, other. Well,
0: how could you not? You had Hannah and Alicia, and then also, you know, Rylan, yeah, and uh, you know, all the other presenters as well. And it was just a who it was awful that because they made me speak at the beginning in front of probably like the world's the best presenting talent <laughs> sitting in the front row. And they said, Will you open up? And of course, do you remember I walked on and I just hit the mic with my hands <laughs> like that, and it was just a disaster. Um, but you're absolutely right. We wanted to set the tone from the beginning that that this, you know, we were doing this for serious reasons, but it was going to be joyous, right? And 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 the presenters, uh, the presenters absolutely got that. Best day, best day in the job. Wow! Because the obvious
2: answer, I presume, will be, oh well, Saturday night, and it all went well, and it was it was great. I, and if that is
0: the answer, then completely fair enough. Well. <laughs> The best day. Well, one of the best days for me was that first day of handing the thing to Graeme Norton. That well, that was amazing. <laughs> I think the first semi-final, when we realised we that that had happened without any hitches, that the voting was all good and clean and true, that had all worked. I think we all had a moment after that first show because actually for us that was the first test. You know, um, but the. I think, you know, when we all got on site for the first time, taking the king and queen round. I mean, that was, like, super fun, right? I got to take the king and queen round Eurovision, and they filmed a bit, and they win the show, and they pressed a the big button and turned the set on. I mean, that was, like, you know... There that was button's so, not connected to anything, that that it, That button Martin? wasn't connected to anything at all. Of course <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but, there was, um, but it, you know, it worked. Uh, it looked great. It was a fun day. It looked great. Yeah, get, getting on site for the first time... Um, and actually looking around was 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 pretty thrilling. But there were lots and lots and lots of good days. And yes, I asked them to give me on grand final night. Oh, the, the night we had our first audience in rehearsal and just seeing how much they just made the atmosphere go through the roof. So this is the Monday night. Yes, yeah, so it would have been first of the two rehearsals towards the first semi-final. Obviously, we'd sold out. So we knew we had a full house every single night. And classically, you know, wow, the, you know, first rehearsal, these people are just amazing. They're never going to beat that. And then it just got, the atmosphere just got better and better and better all week. Um, and and then I, we, a call came through on, on grand final night that the vote was done and it was all good and it was true and it was fair. And I think that's the moment, those of us who could at that stage, I, I went to the bar after that my job is done and I watch I watched the rest of the show on the big screens in the backstage area uh because I knew that a the team had it from here and essentially my job was done but I just wanted to know that the vote was in and done and then I watched the rest you know from there with a glass of wine (laughs) in my hand
2: for the first time in a week so the the titles roll then on 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 Eurovision on, on the grand final on the Saturday night are you able to enjoy yourself? What happened after the cameras turned off on that? Well, I was going to say that Saturday night, but by that point, we're early hours Sunday, Sunday morning. morning.
0: Yeah. Look, we 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 just wanted to say thank you to the crew and everyone. And I what there was, God, was there five hundred people working on that show or something? And so we took over. There was a there was a backstage VIP place where audience could come to and sponsors could come to. And we took that over and we just for two hours from one o'clock till three o'clock. And what was lovely was everyone from the Sparkies to the people who were moving set to the cameramen to Graham and Hannah and everyone came down and it was a hoot. It was a complete hoot. Because also like again, there's there's nothing like doing a show that we knew was was good. Um, we felt it we know the audience felt it we knew the ABU were happy you know not one single hitch, and I really mean that we do so many rehearsals where we and you would have noticed it even if you hadn't noticed it when there's a link that just seems to be too long or or something that just seems to be ever so slightly under rehearsed it's because something's gone wrong on the stage something's not through yet a vote's not through yet a link goes down nothing nothing I mean, it's just the, the testament to that extraordinary team. Not one single glitch in four and a half hours of live television. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping.
2: And then your job is done, I guess, you know, the past. Yeah, we
0: have to wrap up. And again, you know, there's a lot of, don't forget, you know, there's a big, you know, contracting team, a financing team. We also have to get all the data in to make sure that we proved what we said we would do. We did. Did you have a really enjoyable afternoon when you had to fill in your expenses? Because that's always a really (laughs) enjoyable part of the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I I did have an orange juice in there. Yeah, exactly. All that kind of stuff. But, but there was also some, you know, some very hard work kicked in for the finance team, you know, rectifying everything, doing everything like that, both at BBC Studios and, you know, at BBC HQ. Um, and, and, you know, the marketing team collecting the data who watched, you know, it was a while before we found out that, you know, our social media figures were off the chart, our we'd put a million on the broadcast. We'd had two and a half million watching the semifinals, which was unheard of and a great move to BBC one for those. So, and then we, we need to present those back to, you know, the top brass and everything. So there's some really important work to do to wrap it all up. Um, so, yeah, we, we people started to go and, and I think, I, you know, I finished, uh, you know, last one out the door of those because other people were just going back to their regular jobs because we pulled in a load of people from the BBC, took them away from their jobs for a few months. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, I finished at the end of June. Last two from me, uh,
2: The Legacy. The legacy of Liverpool is incredible, not just because of the the impact it had for for Liverpool, which of course we've seen since, but also the impact on on Eurovision. You mentioned United by Music; that is that is here. I'm
0: really proud of that. That is here for good now. I'm really proud because also I'm claiming that. There's you will notice I, most of the time I talk about we and the team, but. We couldn't crack this line at all. And oh, one Sunday,
2: can you oh, can you give us some of the ones that didn't? Quite no, make it I'm, not, oh, that. I'm no. not doing that. No. Okay. Go I was on.
0: driving. Well, we couldn't crack it. And I was, for some reason, I was driving to Birmingham early one Sunday morning on my own. And I was thinking about it, and I just suddenly thought, "It's United by Music, isn't it?" And I phoned Rachel, and I said, oh, "I think it's United by Music," and she said, "I think that might be it." And that's where we get it. And to know now that the EBU have taken that on as a permanent strap line, which, by the way, I think is the right thing. I think it's right for the Euro- for the Eurovision brand that it has the same strap line through all editions. I think it just helps build the brand and, and build it out. Um so that's nice Liverpool's done brilliantly you know they wanted 150,000 people in that weekend half a million turned up <laughs> their economic figures are brilliant the place is still buzzing you know legacy isn't about doing another Eurovision it's about you know what you do next and they're really looking at more about how they look at music in the city over and above the Beatles you know um and I think, you know, again, this the country got to do another, you know, great major event, which we're, in, you know, we're very, very good at and known internationally for government, I think, got what they wanted out in terms of uh, this absolute visible support for Ukraine. And, you know, the BBC, again, you know, the coronation in Eurovision in seven days, there is simply no organisation on on earth that could do that, right, and do it so brilliantly and so you know i I think they're pretty pleased with where they are and the audience figures reflect that
2: and and another point on the legacy of the contest is the the perception of eurovision here in the uk is 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 in places it's not been for for a long time yeah we we
0: we wanted to we wanted to continue to change the perception of it as you know the way i see it is it's the world's greatest music festival right because what we what we forget sometimes is this is a load of ostensibly young people with new songs now you might not like the songs but they are new right and to have 164 million people tuning in to watch you know up to 37 brand new songs you don't get there anywhere else right so it, it is it is a great it is a festival of new music right that's that's how i always used to tell say to the team so I think we changed some percep- perceptions. Our key thing was to bring either people back to Eurovision in the UK or bring people to it for the first time. And clearly over a million people did come back or come to it for the first time. And that's extraordinary. And I hope, no doubt it will dip because you, you've you always got the home advantage, right? But I think it will be higher because I think you know Sweden will do a great job. And, and, Alexander. and also we've got Oli Alexander now so what's not to love right what a coup that's going to be just super fun And you mentioned Sweden, Martin let's finish there I know you've
2: you've been chatting to the team haven't you at SVT and and, and that is is part of what the Eurovision family do
0: Yeah well, you're part of the family now Let's be clear no one needs to teach the Swedes how to do Eurovision right so there's very very little we can tell them but they're very gracious and we spent some time and other members of the team in those first few weeks just passing over the things that we did differently or the things that we found out to do more efficiently or things that we tried that had worked. Also things that we tried that hadn't worked I can't think of one at the moment. But I know, you know, we were just very honest with them. And then every now and then we have a conversation. But, you know, they've got an amazing team over there, most of whom have done it before. Eurovision's in a good place, Martin. It is, it is. And I have to say thank you very much. Martin, what, what are you doing for New Year? People listening to this between Christmas and New Year? What am I doing? I've got my family on Christmas Day. So there's eight of us. And then my husband's family are coming on Boxing Day. So there's 22 of us. Oh, and then, it's like a mini Eurovision. I know, right? And then on New Year's Eve, my mates are coming to dinner and the pub around the corner is having a disco night. Nice. Shall we say no more about how that will end? That sounds perfect.
2: Uh, Martin Green, thank you so much for joining us on the Euro Trip. Really appreciate it.
1: When you aren't listening, find us on social media at EuroTour Podcast on Twitter and Instagram.
2: Well wasn't that lovely? So nice to chat to Martin Green, the managing director of Eurovision 2023. And I hope he had a great Christmas and hopefully he does enjoy what's coming up on New Year. I mean that sounds great, doesn't it? Disco at the pub and some friends round. Yes please brilliant to have martin on the podcast thank you very much to him for being so generous with his time and i think that does properly close the book on eurovision 2023 here on the euro trip for the year so that means that when we're back with our first episode of 2024 it is full steam ahead to malmo We have got loads to look forward to, of course, for 2024. Not least, Ollie Alexander representing the UK. We appear to have a bit of a Eurovision All-Stars on our hands. And we know that SVT in Sweden are going to do a brilliant job as well. So loads to look forward to in 2024. I hope you had a brilliant 2023. Thanks again for joining us over the last 12 months. It's been brilliant to have you with us. And I know from me and on behalf of James as well, he'd want me to tell you how grateful and how thankful we are that you choose to listen to us every single Wednesday and join us on the podcast because it wouldn't be the same without you I mean it literally wouldn't be the same without you, there'd be no point, so thank you so much for listening to us over the course of the last year and we'll be back for plenty more next year as well. Share your thoughts, get in touch with us on social at your Trip Podcast, Twitter, Instagram we're on TikTok as well and feel free to send us an email, hello at EuroTripPodcast.com and if you enjoyed that conversation with Martin Green Or if you have enjoyed everything we've done over the last year, then feel free to buy us a coffee. You can do that over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Eurotrip Podcast. You can just donate a few pounds if you want, and we'd be ever so grateful. So thank you so very much indeed. We'll be back next time very, very soon for our first episode of 2024. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Subscribe as well. And make sure you tell a friend about us if they don't know about us already. I will see you soon, as will James, and in the meantime, thank you so much everybody, goodbye, and Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Mit navn er Anders Mogentarder. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor
1: ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt.
2: Vi skidesretter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjovt og med at have den her vidunderlige